I hope you're in Genesis 32. I'm so excited to be preaching from this passage. It's fitting, as we mentioned in Psalm 146 in our scripture reading, that we have this God of Jacob and that we would be talking about Jacob himself in this chapter. As Pastor Nathan mentioned, uh, the scene which he read for, our, uh, for opening up this sermon in verse 22 through the end of the chapter is, I think, one of the strangest scenes in all of the scriptures. It's certainly in the top five. It has to be. <laughs> it's the scene of the patriarch Jacob, whom you perhaps know and are familiar with the stories. And now here, he is uh, near the Jordan River, and he is wrestling with a mysterious man, as it says there in verse 24, until the breaking of day. He wrestles with this mystery man all night long. And that would be strange enough. It's a weird story. But the story is even filled with, I think, even more strange details. Like the fact that in verse 25 that Jacob is actually beating this mystery man in this wrestling match. And then yet this mystery man just touches Jacob's hip and he throws it out of joint. Or despite that, how Jacob is, is not deterred in this match. He's not deterred as he's fighting with this mystery man. Instead, he is clinging all the more to him. And he actually just demands a blessing from him. Which is a weird thing to do when you're fighting with someone. Or how this wrestling match ends, uh, specifically in verse 28, with this mystery man renaming Jacob. You're not going to be called Jacob anymore, he says, but Israel. It's a strange story, and you might be perhaps scratching your head. But because of its strangeness, it has led to even more strange, stranger, excuse me, interpretations of it, which I always find interesting. Some have taken to sort of allegorizing the story, like you would read the Pilgrim's Progress, and this means that sort of a metaphor. Some have taken uh, the same sort of approach to this scene. Wherein Jacob is pitted against God in a wrestling match of prayer. So much so that, that some have insisted that the story means that we ought to have the same sort of fighting spirit when we are praying with God. To where we won't stop praying until he blesses us, so to speak. Which is, I think, a, a grave disservice to what's actually going on in this story. Uh, this is not an allegory. This isn't a metaphor. This isn't just a, a quaint little picture of faith. This is a real mess wrestling match between two men who are grappling with each other on a real night when Jacob was, yes, at one of his lowest points in his entire life. This really happened. And I think the, the meaning of this story can only be ascertained when we take this story literally. You see... Verses 24 through the end of the chapter, but also the entire chapter of Genesis 32, is essentially well, the, the height of almost the climax of the story of Jacob. It records Jacob's homecoming, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 32, and Jacob went on his way. He's returning to Canaan after 20 years of running. 20 years of running, of course, for his life from his twin brother Esau. From whom you might remember the story. He stole pretty much everything. <laughs> you might remember that scene. He not only steals his birthright, but he also steals the blessing of the firstborn. <laughs> Under, if you go to that chapter, chapter 27, Esau is rightly, understandably, furious. 
Jacob has concocted this plan where he's going to dress up in Esau's clothes and, de- and deceive his father, Father Isaac, and steal the blessing from, uh, from Esau right from under the nose of their father while Esau is away. And when Esau hears the news of this, it says in verse 41, listen to these words, And Esau hated Jacob. Because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. He has nothing but thoughts of vengeance and bloodshed for his brother. Such is what precipitates Jacob's running. And of course Jacob always wanted to think of himself and saving his own skin above everything else. He runs, he flees. Look at verse 43. With the help of his mother, he uh, is told to flee away. Notice verse 43. Now therefore my son, obey my voice and arise. Flee thou to Laban, my brother, to Haran. And tarry with him a few days until thy brother's fury turn away. I find it interesting <laughs> that his mother... Says, tarry with your uncle for just a few days while we let your brother settle down. And then a few days ends up being two decades. 20 years of running until in chapter 31. We won't go through all the events, but Jacob sours that relationship too. (laughs) There's a pattern if you read Jacob's life of souring relationships. Obviously because he's thinking much of himself in each of these relationships. But if you go to chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord says to Jacob, go home. Notice verse 31, or verse 3 of chapter 31. And the Lord said unto Jacob, return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. Such is how chapter 32 begins. Jacob is on his way home, following the command of his Lord, of his God, and he's going home. And Jacob, verse 1 of 32, went on his way. On his way home. It's important to note that as Jacob is going home, he hasn't had any news of Esau. The last words that all of what Jacob knew was that his brother wanted him dead. His brother was out for vengeance, out for blood. He hated Jacob. That's Jacob's thought as he's going back home. His brother just wants him dead. The last communication was, I will slay my brother. That's all Jacob knows. And if, as we know from that quaint old saying, if revenge is a dish best served cold, Esau's has been chilling for 20 years. So Jacob naturally thinks that this dish of vengeance is icy. Their relationship is uh, same, uh, the same sort of temperature. So, as chapter 32 makes evidence, Jacob's perspective of how he approaches his present life is completely colored and tinged by all that he has known that has gone on before. His tattered past continues to drive how he perceives his present. And we might even say too that his selfishness, his self-interest, his self-regard and his his utter concern for self-preservation is coming home to roost so to speak. Because all he can think about is he has to save his own skin. And naturally he assumes that everyone else is thinking the same way that he is. In fact, it takes nothing short of God wrestling Jacob's self-concern right out of him. 
Because you see, if you go back to chapter 32 and verse 24, you have to understand that what makes the closing scene so remarkable, so powerful, so incredibly insightful and astounding is that Jacob is not wrestling with a mere man. Notice verse 24, and Jacob was left alone and there wrestled with a man with him until the breaking of the day. You see, in Hosea 12, verse 4, the prophet alludes to this, to this same event and he refers to the wrestler as an angel of the Lord. You might know that everywhere else in the Old Testament where you can see that phrase, most often it refers to the Lord Jesus. It's God himself incarnated in a human form. And that's precisely what's going on here. Theologians would apply a really fancy word for this called Christophany or theophany. Which is just a big word, meaning that prior to Luke 2, we have Jesus appearing in human form throughout the Old Testament. And this is one of the most graphic scenes where that occurs. Think about it. Jacob is wrestling with Jesus. On the ground uh, next to this uh, incredible scene in this dirt and this grime and in this midnight hour. He's wrestling with the man Jesus. Your first reaction might be understandably why. Why would God do this? Why would God come down and pick a fight with Jacob? What could be the point of that? What's the purpose of this wrestling match with this patriarch all night long? Well that's exactly what I want to speak to this morning. Because I want to examine this text, chapter 32 specifically, and see, uh, I think, three lessons about this God who not only wrestles with Jacob, but I think he wrestles with each of us in some form or fashion. And he wrestles us that we might see his will for us. Notice, first of all, the first lesson, this God, this God wrestles the past out of us. Notice verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. This God wrestles the past out of us. Because you see, Jacob, in every way, if we go through all the chapters, reading every instance where Jacob appears, he always is living up to his name. I'm not sure what, if you know what your name means. Mine is very unremarkable. It just means a broad glade. Broad, Bradley literally means just a big open clearing in a forest, so it's not very inspiring. But Jacob, he lives up to his name in a lot of ways. His name means supplanter or the layer of snares, literally heel grabber. If you know the story of his birth, he came out of the womb of his mother, grabbing and clutching onto the heel of his brother, which is why perhaps they named him Jacob. And ever since, he's been scheming and laying snares all of his way through life. He's been a planter, he's been a deceiver, he's been one who plans and devises ways that he can always come out on ahead. He always has a trick up his sleeve. That's Jacob. In Genesis 25, he, uh, if you remember the story, he weaponizes his brother's hunger in order to steal the birthright from him. 
He uses food to steal his brother's blessing. In Genesis 27, as we referenced earlier, he he concocts this incredible snare in which he's going to steal Esau's blessing of the firstborn for himself by deceiving his father and wearing his brother's clothes. He's always scheming. And you would think that 20 years of running would have taught him something. It would, have, it would have led to some sort of lesson getting into his heart. And, and he would take it to heart that these plans don't work. But it hasn't. He returns home in chapter 32. And he's still up to his conniving and, and deceiving and plotting ways. Notice verse 3 of chapter 32. And Jacob sent messengers, it says, before him to Esau his brother. Unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau, thy servant Jacob, saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed there until now. And I have oxen, and asses, flocks, and men servants, and women servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find grace in thy sight. (laughs) In an effort... As he approaches his homeland, as he is returning home, in an effort to sort of curry favor with the brother that he has betrayed, he sends out spies, messengers, to sort of get a lay of the land. Let's, let's see what, how everything looks. And also to give this message to this brother, Esau. He tries to butter him up. <laughs> he gives him a title of reverence. Did you notice that? It's not just... My brother, he says, my Lord Esau. You are so high and mighty. Let me honor you. Let me give you a sense of reverence. Even though Jacob knows that because God has told him that he would be the one to get the blessing. He even still calls Esau his Lord. But I also, I think it's, isn't it how fascinating how we want to change the details to make ourselves appear better? Notice how he changes why he went away. If you notice verse 4 again, this is so stunning to me. He says, Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have ran away because you wanted to kill me with Laban. No, he says, I've sojourned. (laughs) Which basically means I dwelt there temporarily, almost like I'm on a vacation. (laughs) I'm on a hiatus a little bit. I'm going to spend a couple years abroad with Laban. He wasn't... He wasn't vacationing with Laban. He was hiding out for his life. From his life, we might even say that too. He's changing the way the story was. He's trying to change the narrative so he appears better by giving him this title, by changing the details. All of this in a dishonest effort to find grace in his brother's sight. (laughs) Because again, he wants to save his own skin. All of this falls flat, however. Because notice verse 6. These messengers come back and they bear some very ominous news. And the messengers, it says, return to Jacob saying, We came to thy brother Esau. And also he cometh to meet thee and 400 men with him. So not only does Esau know that he's coming back. Not only does Esau already has already been aware that Jacob is on the way home. Now he's coming out to meet him. And this welcoming committee is a 400 men strong army. Talk about putting the fear into someone. Someone who already knows that his neck is on the line. Someone who already knows that vengeance is what his brother wants. Do you think that this stood his hairs on end? I think it did. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 7. Then Jacob 
was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that was with him in the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands. And said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. Here we have a second scheme of Jacob's. As he's returning home, he decides that the best way to survive is to split up his company into two groups. Into two bands. And so if one is attacked, one if one is sort of sieged by Esau's army, then the other can escape quietly in the night, so to speak. And there, I have no doubt that Jacob was planning a way in which he could stay behind and get to pick and choose which one he goes to. Because that's just, that's Jacob. He's scheming his way through this. He hasn't learned much. After he prays, which we'll get to in a minute, in verses 9 through 12, he prays this prayer. But he adds a third layer of sort of planning and scheming as he's coming home, which is we might call reciprocation. Because he determines that the best way that he can approach his brother and, and his brother and get sort of this favor from him, get this kindness and grace out of him, is to give him presents. Notice verse 13. And he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for his brother Esau. Notice verse 18. Then thou shalt say, they be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my Lord Esau. Again, notice that title. And behold, also he is behind us. You see, he's assuming that it's within his capacity and within his ability that he can buy his brother's kindness. Have you ever tried to buy someone's goodwill? Probably doesn't end very well. Because we can see through those charades of, of sort of deference. When you're trying to buy favor, curry favor by buying a certain possession. And here he's doing the same sort of thing. Here, be nice to me. Look at all these things I want to give you. Especially when work, if you've swindled that person out of their almost entire life. He thinks that he can buy his brother off with a few cattle. <laughs> with a few, a few people he's offering to him for service. Here Jacob again is planning. He's conniving. He's assuming that his intellect and his intuition is always right. And that he can, he can buy his way through and get through on his own terms. So therefore, I say all that to say this. In verse 27... When the wrestler is asking Jacob's name, it's not out of courtesy. Verse 27, and he, that is the wrestler, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. He's not wanting to just be nice to him so that he knows this guy who's winning over him. He's wanting to hear Jacob say that name out loud. So that he can fear and, and feel, uh, excuse me, feel and face everything that that name means. I am Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, the schemer, the swindler. That's who I am. He wants him to feel that in his bones. He wants him to be reminded of who he is. I am Jacob. You see, in in that Jacob would be forced to see. That all of his schemes, they've led him to this moment. <laughs> Alone at midnight with this mysterious wrestler. 
All of his plots, they haven't succeeded. All of his plans, they've fallen short. He has schemed his way throughout his whole life, and he's made just a royal mess of things. And for all of Jacob's efforts to manipulate people and control outcomes, he's come up short. So much so that now he's by himself on the eve of perhaps what he thinks, uh, that he is going to lose his life because his brother is coming and his brother wants vengeance. You see, I say that to say this this morning. Maybe you feel similarly to Jacob. You feel alone and you feel uh, isolated and you feel as though God is wrestling with you. Maybe God's not resorted to putting you in some sort of divine arm bar, but uh, to face your past and force you to own up all of the ways that you've fallen short. And I pray that he doesn't have to do that in a, in a very a stunning way. But let it be known, God is wrestling the past out of us. He wants us to see that who we are is always going to end up in failure. And that he is the one who has died for who we are. He wants us to get our attention off of all the ways that we can connive and plot and scheme our way through life. So that we can see that we always make messes of things. And when we take things in our own hands... When we become the supplanters of his sovereignty, we always make a mess of things. And you can be sure, you can be rest assured that God will get your attention. By some way, he will put us flat on the mat to sort of keep up that wrestling metaphor. (laughs) He's going to put us flat on our backs so that we have to see. (laughs) We are the supplanters and he is the sovereign one. Ours is a God who wrestles the past out of us. He wants us to let go of all of those ways in which we try to wrestle control out of his hands. (laughs) And he does that by wrestling the past out of us. But notice again, the second lesson is that this God wrestles the present for us. Notice again those verses. And he said, let me go. For the day breaketh, and he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be no more called Jacob, but Israel. You see, as Jacob is grappling, wrestling with this mysterious wrestling man at at midnight near the Jabbok River, I'm sure that he was just completely stunned and surprised by those words. Yes, the name calling, you are Jacob, but also the renaming. You're not going to be called Jacob anymore. You're going to be called Israel. You know what Israel means? It means God prevails. God prevails. As we just iterated a moment ago. Jacob's entire life has been lived in such a way when he, where he's been shouldering the burden of making sure that he survives. Of making sure that he prevails. Making sure that he always comes out on top. By hook or by crook, we could use that idiom. He has always been trying to ensure that he is coming out ahead of everyone else. Saving his own skin. And in many ways, all of his life has been lived in that crooked scheme. And where has that gotten him? 
Where, what has that really done for him? Actually, absolutely nothing. Because for all of his plotting and his planning and ensuring that he can come out on top, Jacob's life is not secure. Notice verse 20. Listen to this confession. And say ye moreover, behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goeth before me. And afterward, I will see his face peradventure. He will accept of me. Peradventure is a striking word that ought to hit us in the heart. It's not a word we often use. It basically means perhaps, maybe, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Possibly, there's a possibility that my brother Esau, who is marshalling an army to march up to me, and all he knows is that he wants vengeance, maybe he will accept me because of all these things I'm planning and scheming and plotting. His entire life was left up to a peradventure, up to a perhaps. His life was still up to chance. And this is, of course, certainly not God's doing. This is entirely Jacob's doing. This is because Jacob has taken every moment and taken everything and assumed that he has to be the one that prevails. He has to be the one that gets control. You notice, on his way home, verse 1 of chapter 32, and Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. On his way home, he's met by a host of angels, which indeed is a sign that God was with him on his return journey. That you haven't been abandoned. You haven't been left alone. When you go home, you are going there on God's good will. You are going there with him beside you. And yet Jacob still doesn't take this to heart. Such is why he's devising all those elaborate plans to appease his brother, to pay him back, to sort of cover all the ways that he's messed up. But if that weren't enough, even more appalling than trying to buy his brother's kindness, he attempts to do the same thing with God. If you read the prayer in verses 9 through 12 that Jacob prays, it sounds really good on the surface. Listen to what he says. And Jacob said, verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother, and mother, the mother with the children. And thou, thou said, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This prayer sounds really good. If you read it, it sounds like a prayer we ought to be praying. But of course, it comes from the lips of this one that we know is Jacob. <laughs> and if you take a moment to really consider what he's saying, I think this prayer is nothing short of another scheme by which he's trying to curry favor, this time with God. It's a deeply self-interested prayer. 
Remember, the predicament that he's in is entirely his doing. (laughs) And he says, deliver me, I pray thee, I don't want to go through this, I don't want to have to face up to any of these consequences, save me, because remember who you are? Notice, he uses who God is almost as against him. You're the God of my father Abraham. You're the God of my father Isaac. Verse 12, you're the God who covenanted with my father Abraham that you're going to bless our family and make us into a nation that is beyond counting. He insists that God has to protect him. Remember who you are. You have to deliver me. But even more fascinating to that, I love the fact, again, as we noted earlier, Jacob is always changing the narrative to make himself appear better. Notice notice what he changes. Verse 9, as he opens this prayer, he entirely misquotes what God said. Thou said unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Is that what God said? If you go back, you don't have to go there. If you read 30, chapter 31, verse 3, notice, notice what God actually said to Jacob. Return unto the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. Jacob hears what he wants to hear. God, you promised that as I go back home, you're going to deal well with me. You're going to make me prosper, is what that means. You're going to give me prosperity. You're going to make it well with all of my days. That's not what God said. God never promised him prosperity. He promised him his presence. You go home because I'm going to be with you. You go back to your homeland and return unto the brother that you swindled and stole everything away from. And I will be with you. Trust me. I am with you is what God is saying. You see, even through this prayer, Jacob is trying to scheme with God. I won't ask you to raise your hands for how many times you've done something similar. God, if you just pull through in this, I promise. God, if you just, if you just promise me that you're going to do this, I will do this. God, why, why don't you come through in this situation? God, you said. So many ways in which I can even attest to the fact and confess to the fact that I've tried to put God in my debt by scheming through prayer. Is anything more disrespectful and dishonoring than that? You see, Jacob hasn't learned much. Therefore, when Jacob hears this new name, it's a shot to the heart. You're not going to be called the deceiver, the the supplanter anymore. You're not the one who prevails. Your name is Israel. Because God always prevails. His plans always succeed. Where yours always results in messes, mine always results in glory. It's not God's plans. It's not, it, or it's, not, it's not Jacob's plans. It's God's. His order for things are always going to come up successful. They're not led up to chance. They're not led up, left up to peradventure. Maybe. Possibly. His plans succeed. Because he is God. The one who has ordered and arranged everything. We might say that our plans are put down in pencil and his are carved in stone. I have a calendar. 
in my office that sits on my desk, which I like to write things down, and I write many things down redundantly. I have a calendar on my phone, which is attached to my iPad and to my computer, so they're all interconnected, and I still write things down on a big desk calendar because I don't want to forget things. I cannot tell you how many little dates and events I've had to white out last year. (laughs) I would have all these things planned and white out. I had to cancel those. God has never had to do that with anything he's ever planned. He's never used whiteout on something that he has arranged because his arrangements always succeed. And I think this is the the wrestler's purpose. This is God's purpose by grappling with Jacob in the dirt. Is to get him to see that he is nothing. Listen to what Ryan Ryder says. He says, Jacob was meant to see his sense of nothingness. To cause him to see what a poor and helpless, worthless creature he was. For all of his scheming, he was nothing. He couldn't get ahead. He couldn't succeed because he was poor and worthless and helpless. And it was to teach us through him the all-important lesson that in recognized weakness lies our strength. <laughs> That's the predominant lesson of this text. <laughs> God putting us flat on our back to see that in our weakness, he is strong. And I think that perhaps for many of us, he's doing the same thing. Wrestling with us in our present and for our present. Because it might look ominous and sinister right now. The days ahead don't appear very clear. Actually, they appear very dark and cloudy and murky. We have no sense of what the future might hold. But ours is a present that God has wrestled for us. That God has arranged for us. And in that, we are reminded of who always comes out on top. Not us, God. He prevails. Israel. God and God alone. This God who wrestles the past out of us. This God who wrestles the future, the present for us. And you might assume what I'm going to say next. This God, lesson three, who wrestles the future for us. Because what's most fascinating to me is the outcome of this wrestling match. Go back with me. 32 verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall no more be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen the face of, seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him. This wrestler, who we know is Jesus, declares Jacob the winner, which is fascinating to me. Because actually, at the start of the match, Jacob is winning. He's getting the best of this mystery man, this mysterious wrestler. And then God fights a little dirty. 
Jacob is prevailing, and that's when God touches his thigh and throws it out of joint. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not a wrestler. <laughs> I've never wrestled in any sense of the term. But I know, I know that without leverage, you're almost always going to be bested. And without a hip in socket, you best believe that you don't have as much leverage as you ought to have to win. <laughs> God fights a little dirty. Throws Jacob's hip out of joint. So he can't win. And such is why this fight goes from two men grappling in the dust to Jacob just hanging on. Verse 26, and he said, that is the wrestler, let me go. Jacob's just clutching at him. Doing all that he can to still prevail in this fight. And think about it, Jacob is left Alone, He has sent his family ahead of him. He has sent every person and party from his company on ahead of him. And now he's ambushed by this mysterious attacker in the middle of the night. Do you want to talk about lowly, cast down, and unnerved by everything that's going on in his life? And that's when he cries for the blessing. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. See, this cry for blessing is a cry for mercy. I can't do anything except that you bless me. Perhaps in that gloomy night, he finally realized who he was wrestling with. That it wasn't just a mysterious man. It was God himself. And that's when he finally learned to cry, uncle, enough. I can't do it unless you bless me. I can't get by in this life unless you do it. And such is why God renames him Israel. See, the point of the scene is not that Jacob was so faithful that he wrestled with God until he was blessed. The point of the scene is that God was so patient that he wrestled with Jacob all night long. Until all he could do was cling to him. God put a, could have put his hip out, out of joint in the first few minutes of the fight. <laughs> he wanted Jacob to come to the end of himself. Until all he was doing was holding on for dear life. Jacob didn't win because of his power or prowess at being a wrestler. He won because God allowed him to. Because I think he had finally learned his lesson. He cries out for blessing. In verse 30. And he called that place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. This is the type of God that we have. That word in verse 24. Wrestled. A fascinating word. It, you know what it literally means? It literally means to get dusty. You know in those old cartoons when two characters would fight and there would just be a dust cloud? And they're fighting but you really can't see what they're doing? That's the, that, I don't know why, but that's the picture that came into my head when I read that word and was looking up its meaning. They're just fighting. They're at each other. And they're rising up a dust cloud. But you know what it got me to think of? That That's God. Fighting with Jacob in the dust. That's what he does for his children. That's what he does for you and for me. He's so committed to ensuring your deliverance that he is willing to get dusty in order to make it happen. 
He's willing to come down to the dirt and the grime of this earth in order to make sure that your deliverance is secure. This is our God. He wrestles with us until he has every single part of us. Until there's no nook or cranny that's left in our soul that he has not invaded. This is what he was doing for Jacob. (laughs) Yes, he's going to stop at nothing until that occurs. Until that good work that he is working to perform perform in us is totally complete. Yes, even if that means lowering himself to such a level that he can be bested in a wrestling match. And yes, even if that means losing everything. Because you see, this is the gospel. This is the good news that we have because that's exactly what our God did. He humbled himself so much that he was beaten by a man on a wrestling match with a dislocated hip. But even better, he humbled himself so much that he allowed himself to be defeated on a cross of wood that he spoke into existence. The defeats... Here, by the river Jabbok, reminds me of Jesus' defeat on Golgotha. When he was on that cross. Where he allowed himself to be defeated. Why? So that his sons could have the blessing. So that his daughters and his sons could be delivered. What more proof of God's Unstoppable love do you need than this passage. He's going to stop at nothing in order to rescue you and reclaim you. Even if it means he has to wrestle everything out of you. Until you can't hold on to anything except for him. If you ever have a doubt of his determination for you. Remember this scene. And remember the cross. Because regardless of of what your past looks like, of what your present might make you feel like, or what your future seems like, how it's going, there's simply this. There's no limit to what God will do in order to reconcile you to himself. He hasn't stopped ever. You think he's going to stop now? At all times. God is wrestling with us. Wrestling our control. Wrestling our conniving and our plotting. Wrestling everything out of our hands. Till we are no longer self-sufficient. And he is seen as our sole sufficiency. That to me I think is a pattern learned all throughout the Old Testament. Where people think that they are a lot more intellectual than they are. Are brought really low. And made to see that only God prevails. And guess what? We have not changed since this time. (laughs) Sin nature is still sin nature. We're still learning that lesson. Where we think that we're so high and mighty and sufficient in ourselves. What is God wrestling out of your hands? What are you still clinging to this morning? That you haven't let God have a part of. Haven't let God control this particular part of your life. You have a God who wrestled with you on that cross. And allowed himself to be bested. Why? So that we might be blessed. 
So that we might be his sons and daughters. This is what your God does. He wrestles with us and withers all of our self-sufficiency away so that he might be seen as our soul sufficiency, the only God who prevails. Let us pray.